you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out this year, 2022. Don't have a release date yet, but it'll be there for your eyeballs to see. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome director Luis Prieto on the show to talk about directing his latest film, Shattered, and how he made the jump from directing comedies in Italy to directing thrillers in Hollywood. And there's way more to this story. It's very exciting. It was just really great to hear about how hard it was, like when he had such success in Italy, to make it to America back because he went to school in Hollywood. You know, he went all around the world making movies before he came back to where he wanted to be in LA doing his thing. But yeah, really love the conversation. After that, we discuss an article about the Golden Globes not being aired, which I had no idea happened because I never watched the Golden Globes. And I was like, oh, Golden Globes happened. Ah, Encanto won for Best Animated. Ah, cool. And then, wait, I read this article. I was like, what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then after that, we answer another listener email, which is amazing that we've gotten two back to back. But first, for all that, Liz, how are you doing? How am I doing? I'm doing well. We had a major COVID scare in our house this weekend and early this week. And today is the first day that my son is back in daycare full time this week. And it is a massive, massive difference in my life. I think, I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I feel a lot of guilt as a parent putting my child in daycare in the middle of the Omicron surge, especially in Los Angeles. And I've been entertaining all these thoughts like, well, maybe I'll just take him out for a few weeks until the end of January. And then he got a stomach flu and daycare thought it was COVID and we had to kind of undergo all these things. And having him home for five days straight, including the weekend, was too too much to bear is, I think, <laughs> what I'm acknowledging. It was just so much to balance work and life and the kiddo and a pandemic and you know, and vomit and diarrhea and all of these things all at the same time. So that's what I'm thinking about is like, how do you maintain a freelance lifestyle when there's nothing stable and you're in the middle of pure chaos and you just want to do right by your child? How are you? So no COVID then in the end? No COVID, COVID, two negative tests, totally fine. He complained of a stomach ache at daycare and they called me ah. and they were like, diarrhea is a symptom. And I was yeah. like, okay, well, we'll we'll take him out and we'll get him tested. And turns out he just wanted to watch Encanto all day. So it's just like this, you know, he, he now knows that he could say he has a stomach ache and he won't have to, you know, not watch television for eight hours. Yeah, I, I was hearing from my brother that his kids will like exaggerate when they're feeling sick yeah. often. And it's like they can't, you just can't do that because then you're basically going to get kicked out of school if you say if you say you have like, oh, I'm feeling sick, I've got a runny nose. They're like, don't say that because your <laughs> nose is actually not runny. And you're just saying that because you want me to give you attention and you're not actually sick. And it's no. just like, oh, man, so crazy. Yeah, I've, I've heard similar stories from my family about like our friends of, you know, kids in their schools getting COVID and then they're them taking their kids out of the school. Because they're like, oh, well, there's COVID going around. We don't want to even expose them. So then, like, lots of kids being at home right now. My kid is, like, six months old. So, you know, it's a lot easier. I, I don't know. Imagine what it's going to be like when she's one or two and trying to do what we're doing now. Because basically, 
we're not doing daycare yet. We may do it at some point, but for now, it's like, you know, we're just juggling it, you know, like I'll take over some, sometimes my wife will take over other days. Like we've got this whole like, like really crazy loosey goosey process. So far, so good, but it's only because she's taking long naps right now. When the right, naps she's go not away, walking either, right? So you, no, she's, she's not rolling, walking. I yeah, assume, she's but. she's rolling. I I create a little barricade behind me <laughs> when I'm watching her, and she'll just roll around in her bar- barricaded area and yeah. not go anywhere. And yeah, it, it works great. But um, you know, that's that's not going to last for <laughs> So I dread. I dread what's going to happen when she's more mobile. We'll see. I mean, we'll just we'll just adjust. Well, and there is a daycare time, down the street, so we might have vaccines for under fives by that time. Honestly, yeah, like that's what's maybe. so crazy about the situation we're all in right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, I'm doing well. I've been thinking a lot lately about big questions in life, like like you know, as filmmakers, we're chasing this dream of like you know being a successful filmmaker and like you know being paid to make movies and like that being your career. But then like. You know, you think about your success and like what that would actually mean. Like if I actually did get what I want, like would I even want that thing? Like, do I want to be so busy that I'm like away from my family all the time? Like, do I even want that lifestyle that I'm like searching, searching for? It's like, is there a version of my dream that coincides with what I actually want to do with my time? You don't, I, who knows? Like, is that, does that even exist? I'm not sure, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like in the end, it's just that what I've been thinking about a lot is just like, you know, it doesn't really matter what the the outcome is, really. It's like, I just need to make the movies that I want to make and like tell the stories I want to tell. And I'm still getting enough enjoyment out of that. So like, just keep pushing forward, do the day job, make a movie, you know, however long it takes to make the movie, doesn't matter, just keep going. And then when other things happen, if if they happen, like if success comes, if opportunities come, then take them one at a time and not worry about like this big thing of like, oh, what's my life going to be like? Does does what I want even matter? You know, it's like, I don't know, maybe it does, but you can still dream and still go after it. So I don't know. I've been thinking about that the last couple of days <laughs> and like having this little internal crisis. I feel that way all the time. I mean, like that was part of my breakdown the past few days when Colin was home was I was like, well, I can't make money and I can't do anything creative. And I love my son, but all he wants to do is watch YouTube videos where girls in makeup eat different colored foods. And like, this is not a life, right? So what what would make (laughs) this life just like slightly better than it is right now? And yeah, what is the key to happiness and fulfillment? And I think there's a lot of, FOMO that goes into our goals as filmmakers. Like we uh, see these trades announcements and we're like, well, I want to direct the Eternals. And then it's like, do I really, <laughs> do I really want to? I don't know if I really want to direct the Eternals. But it feels like, yes, it looks exciting because that director is in demand and that they're getting paid. But is, is Chloe Zhao being fulfilled? I don't know. So I, I love yeah. that you're asking yourself those questions. And then you think like, oh, well, if I got the Eternals movie, I would get flown to all these places, but I'd be making so much money. I could just take my family with me and it would be so great. But then you don't think about like, oh, well, they, you know, my spouse has a job. My child will probably be in school with friends. Like, do you really want that life for them? And it's like all these other, like, you know, another level of (laughs) like, oh God, would that be the right thing? And then all your, your fantasizing about getting the opportunity to direct a Marvel movie. And then like, will I take my family with me or not? And then you're like, wait, what is the crazy world am I dreaming in? Like, just 
write the script that you're working on, <laughs> damn it. Like, that's that's all that really matters. Like, don't worry about all these if, ands, or buts. Like, just focus on the craft in the time that you have while your daughter's sleeping or, you know, before you go to bed after you've worked all day. Like, whatever it is, you know, it's just, just like, focus on problems. the here and now. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, stop fantasizing about, like, what you really want in the, in the world and then, like, yeah, problem solving for the fantasy. It's like... Yeah. Just work on, work on what's re- real. <laughs> you know? it's, funny. it's funny. But speaking of what's real, don't forget to go and support our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash podcast. And a very, very happy birthday to Bentley Heyman for doubling their pledge. It's amazing. You know, it was so, so cool. We get these like little unexpected little notices from, from Patreon and they're like, oh, someone decided to like up their, their contribution. So... Bentley, happy birthday. We really appreciate Yay. you. I love Bentley. He's a very cool filmmaker and a good person. Thank you, Bentley. Nice. I don't know Bentley, but I'm just going to say that Bentley's awesome because they're part of our Making Movies Hard family, which is all that matters. Also, it's today, AMA, happening. So if you're one of those people who listen at 7 a.m. right when the episode drops, you can go over to our Patreon page and become a Patreon patron and at 2 30 p.m today we'll be doing our ama and we'll be giving away a big prize from our newest sponsor jambox.io which is this new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high quality cinematic cues they offer customized plans to fit your needs they also don't have composers that go on all the different services that they're exclusive so you won't hear these tracks popping up on lots of other platforms and also starting today and this does apply to everyone listening in the future you can use our promo code MMIH when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. So, without any more blibber blabber, let's go to my chat with Luis Prieto. Well, Luis Prieto, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, my pleasure. So, give us the elevator pitch for Shattered. Wow, okay, you killed me then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shadow is a thriller starring John Malkovich, Frank Grillo, Cameron Monaghan, Lily Crook, and Sasha Juice. It is in the vein of basic instinct and fatal attraction. It is from the stars like a beautiful love story of two souls that find each other and everything is going to be really happy after. And then it suddenly has a big dark twist. And everything goes to hell. The, the protagonists, and by extension, the spectators, find themselves in a big, crazy roller coaster full of violence, cruelty, and also funky, quirky moments. Amazing. How many days did you shoot the film? Well, I shot the film in 20 days. 20 days? Wow. Yes. It's not if you can film. say, <laughs> I mean, 20 days with that kind of cast, that kind of the mental look. I just watched the trailer, I just saw how many locations there are. I mean, that's, that's a lot to do in such a short amount of time. If you can say, what was the rough budget of the movie? God, I think we're under five millions. That's, nice. uh, that's probably the number. And then how did you, well, I know that you weren't the writer, but like, I guess, you know, how did the idea come about? Like, how did you get a, a, attached to this project? Well, I, let's say the production felt in my hands, you know, through my agents. I read it. I felt it was a page turner. Once I started reading it, I couldn't stop. And as I was reading it, also I was imagining the film. So I said, I want to do this. And then like Hollywood, you said that one day, 
and then nothing happens for a few years and then all of a sudden you get a phone call and someone says, hey, you know, remember that the script that you love? It has been greenlit. So that's what happened when the producers called me and said, well, we're ready to make the film. You want to make it? And I said, of course, I want to make it. That was it. You know, then everything fell really fast into place and we shot the film in the spring of this year. So it was a film that was done under COVID. So it was kind of like, like every other film that was made, challenging. But also that's, wow. that's what we did. You mentioned a little bit about the timeline, but like how long did you spend working on the film from like, you know, like the, the moment where you read the script and you're like, I love it, to when it's been released? Well, I would say something, uh, you know, an important thing that every director works preparing a film and it's everything that happens in your life before that film. Like that already you have been preparing yourself for that moment, you know, for them making the film. Then when they say, okay, you get the film, you know, let's, let's screen, you know, it's screen lit, let's go. You have what is called pre-production. And in this case, I want to think that maybe we have a month and a half of pre-production. I think it was going to be probably a little bit less, but because of COVID, you know, everything was more complicated and everything took more time than one usually would have done, you know, for this kind of film, for this kind of budget. And that was it, you know, maybe a couple more weeks on my own, you know, with the DP looking for locations, you know, with very, very reduced crew. But yes, this is kind of like, um, yeah, what can I say? It's like, uh, yeah, a tour de force. <laughs> <laughs> and then compared to all the other films that you've made, how difficult was this one? Well, for good or for bad, the last three films that I have done, they have been films that they look great, all of them, and I think Charlie looks fantastic, but they were also done very few days. So previous to this one, I did a film with Halle Berry, a title Kidnap, and that film was shot in 20 days. <laughs> So, so that was crazy. We did have also like two more weeks of uh, second unit photography because it was an action, you know, like a car chase. So basically there was a lot of uh, driving and accidents and things like that. So that took two more weeks. But basically with Halle Berry, that is in every second of the film, she was there for 20 days, just like here. Previous to that, they did another film in England called Pusher. And that one was 25 days. So, <laughs> so I want to say, compared to my last three films, it was average. Previous to that, I used to work on, uh, I did romantic comedies. And I have to say that was interesting enough, even though romantic comedies are much easier to shoot than thrillers. It was also maybe different times, you know, I had, or maybe because they were shot in Europe, so budgets were different or who knows what. Those, they were actually 40 days. So, but yeah, sort of got the specialized in making them. I hope it's not my signature, but yes, uh, sometimes you have to shoot it with what you got. So I wanted to kind of jump back in time a little bit and hear about your start as a filmmaker. So I was as noticed that your first film was made in Spain, and then you went and you immediately made these movies in, in Italy, like you were saying, that were like these comedies, romantic comedies. So can you just talk about like, like how that all came to be, like how you ended up making a movie? Well, it makes sense you made a movie where you're from, but then like, how did you end up in Italy making film? Yeah, well, after I mean, sometimes life surprised me, and that's what happened to me. My first film was a Spanish production that we ended up shooting in Argentina. So actually, I left. So it was a Spanish production, but we shot it in Argentina. And what's happening is one of the producers who was involved during the pre-production, it was this Italian production company. So that I didn't, they didn't produce the film, but they knew about the whole development process. So once the film was done in Argentina, I came back, I put my film together, and it happened to be that I went to Italy for a week. So just by coincidence, I saw the producers, they asked me, how was the film? 
I showed it to them, even if it was only uh, 10 music, the film wasn't finished yet. And they loved it and they said, listen, uh, we want to shoot a romantic comedy where the protagonist goes on a motorbike. And we just saw that in your film, the protagonist was riding also a scooter. And there is a love story. So we think you would be perfect for it. You want to do it. So I read the script and I said, okay, sure, let's do it. You know, my Italian was sort of like not great, I have to say. I mean, I, I was, you know, I spoke Italian and Spanish. I'm from Spain and Italian is very similar to Spanish. It's not the same. So anyway, I was able to get through, you know, and then just start pre-production, you know, improve my Italian, <laughs> get really good in my Italian by the time I was done with the film. And what happened is that the film actually became a huge box office success in Italy. It did like, it was actually the the most successful film for many years in terms of box office. So, so anyway, so that was my second film. My first film, the one that I have done in Argentina, wasn't getting released because the production, the production company actually went bankruptcy uh, before the film was released. So it just felt natural hanging out in Italy, enjoying the success of my second film. As a matter of fact, my first film, since the first film still hadn't come out. So, you know, in terms of release day. So that's what happened. So I stayed in Italy, making films in Italian. Even though my first film was not a romantic comedy, now I was making films in Italy that they were romantic comedies. So that was great. It was good for a few years, for a few films. I actually made uh, three projects there in Italy. And just when it was starting to get a little bit, not boring, I wouldn't say boring, but just when it started to get like too comfortable, you know, just doing the same thing and I wanted to do those things, I got a chance to direct the English remake of Nicholas Wynn, the Ref Pusher. So that was the project that brought, brought me to London and allowed me to shoot my first film in English. The film worked out very well. It was released in the US, theoretically, and then BOD. It was in a few film festivals. Uh, it was in Toronto. It was in Edinburgh. Wow. So anyway, it got me the recognition to, I would say, get me back to the US because actually I went to film school in Los Angeles. So, oh. so I went back basically to where I came from in a way, you know film studies in LA and all that. So, so yeah, so then I was back in Los Angeles making films and then one thing led to another, you know, I, I landed in Kidnap with Halle Berry and that went very well, even though, again, you know, in this case, the distributor had also some financial troubles and it took a couple of years to distribute the film, even though it was completed. But, you know, at the end, it didn't matter. The film came out, it did very well and sort of like allowed me to keep making uh, more films. So in a nutshell... Yeah, no, that's great. <laughs> Talk about how, like, after Pusher, what that was like. Like, you know, at that point, you must have managers and, and agents and everything from, from Italy, but did you have to get new representation in America? Like, how did that all play out, like, leading to getting the, set, the movie with Halle Berry? Well, actually, I mean, after I did my film in, in Italy, since it was so successful, you know, I just went back to the States because actually I was in the States before going to Europe to make films thinking that I would be able to get an agent. But I didn't realize that my successful film, it was in Italian, and people didn't speak Italian in the US. So it didn't mean that much. <laughs> so that was fine, you know, I just went back to Italy and kept making films in Italy. That's why when I got a chance to make a film in English, and that was Pusher, I knew that that was my calling card for making films in English. In this case, obviously, in the US. So having that, you know, dumb Pusher, it started, you know, already before even went to any film festivals. Already, I guess it was attracting attracting enough attention that I got a call from an agency in Los Angeles that they wanted to represent me, and I say, sure, why not? 
then everything just, you know, one thing followed the next thing. And, you know, before you realize they bring your script that you love and you say you want to do it. And you meet the producers, and in this case, Lorenzo Bonaventura, that is a fantastic producer. You know, he thought I was the right guy to direct the movie and then got a chance to meet Holly and she had seen my previous work. She saw my short film that I did before making my feature films. And she just loved my work and we started working together and that was how everything started. So yeah, one thing led to the other one, you know I mean? And, and I will say this because I didn't mention at the beginning, before my feature film, my first feature film, what really launched my career was a short film that I made. It won many international prizes, I think like around 50 international prizes. And among them, it was the first Tribeca Film Festival. It won the first, the best short film. So they say one piece brought together the next piece and, you know, little by little, you built something like a career. Wow. So how long did it take to get the Halle Berry movie after you got your agents? Was it just like a couple of years or was it faster than that? Like how did, what was the process from like going from like your first English speaking mm. movie to your second English speaking movie? It didn't take that much. I want to think that maybe it was a year, maybe a year and a half. It was a film that came together really fast. I want to think that it took a year. You know, I read the script, I think, in February. Lorenzo Di Buenaventura told me that we're bringing the script to Cannes because he was independently financed. And I think the second day, Halliburton had been attached before going to Cannes. And I think the first or the second day of Cannes, the film was already financed. They, they were able to basically do international sales based on the elements of, you know, Halliburton, obviously, that's the most important one, the script, the producers, also Lorenzo Bonaventura, and myself. And I think we were started shooting in September. So it really came together really fast, that project. Wow. So have you ever been involved in, like, the fundraising for any of your films? Or has it been a, a situation where, like, from the circumstances, you've always just been hired to, as a director for hire on all these projects? Well, I, I work in many projects in a way, um, or, or let me say it a different way. So I make feature films, I do also TV, but I also do more personal projects uh, like documentaries. I have done a couple of documentary feature documentaries. And in the feature documentaries, I, tend to, I produce them myself, you know. So in that case, I've been involved in finding the money for the, those projects. Sometimes they are commissioned, so... It's even better. You don't have to look for the money. They sort of like someone calls you, hey, I got the money. You want to make the film? In my feature films, I was not involved in raising the money. They were, you know, both of them, the producers were the ones who raised the money. I mean, they're, they're the producers in the case of Shatter and, you know, for Kidnap, it was uh, Lorenzo Bonaventura and his production company, the Bonaventura Pictures. And then like, is this all you've had to do like since you made your first film in Spain? Like, have you had to do anything else to pay the bills? Or have you been lucky enough to like just make films and that is provided for your whole life? Well, for the whole life until now. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, you can't retire yet. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I can't retire yet. I, I actually wouldn't want to retire. I, I love making movies. <laughs> you know, I have been a lucky person in the sense that I, interesting enough, as I was saying before, so. I went to film school after film school, got different jobs. And then when I say, okay, enough, I want to I wanna make a film. That's what I went to film school because I wanted to make films. So I did my short film and I was lucky enough that it won so many prizes. And some of the prizes that were cash prizes that I live very comfortably 
for two years. Now, keep in mind that I was a student, so students live very comfortably with very little money. <laughs> but it was fine, you know, I was extremely happy with it. But I, what I want to say is like, it's not like a one million, you know, I, I, you know, there will be prices like, it, it not, you know, 10,000, 20,000, whatever. But there were so many that at the end it became almost like a paycheck. And then I was so lucky in addition to all the economic prices, I also got the recognition to make a feature film, write my first feature film. So I got paid for being a writer in the film and then I could pay for being a director. And if it wasn't, you know, of course, your first film is not like you make a lot of money, but you make enough to live out of what you're doing. And then I have to say after my Italian film that did very well in the box office, that gave me some, you know, some space to sort of like relax and be able to keep being a filmmaker, even if I was just making a, a film a year or every two years. And I have been lucky enough of not having to say yes to everything and just say, yes, I want to make this film because I really believe in the film. So, but, but yet still uh, live out of my films, you know, live as a filmmaker. So, you know, I'm a normal person, you know, that just uh, you know, is very passionate about his work and, you know, it's very selected, but yet at the same time, you know, can, you know, I can do what I like, that is making films. So, so no, no side jobs. <laughs> <laughs> After Pusher, I, I see that you did a lot of TV directing, as you mentioned. So how did that come about? Was that something that like you sought after that? You're like, oh no, I, I want to move into TV. Or was it more that like your new representation was like, oh, I, I can get you a job here. Like it'll be lucrative. Like you can just, you know, this is a good thing for you to do for your career. Well, it's very interesting because it kind of started all in a very, like an accent in the sense that I go to the States, I, you know, very rapidly I got kidnapped running. I knew I was going to do kidnap, I think, in March or early April. That was going to happen after the summer. And I felt like I needed to shoot something for making a film with Halle Berry and Lorenzo Bonaventura. Uh, in the sense that I have worked in Europe, in Argentina, in the UK, but not in the US. And I was not nervous, but I wanted to make sure that I knew how to make a film. Not how to make a film, I knew how to make a film. I wanted to make sure that I knew how was the workplace in the U.S. I, wanted, I didn't want it to have any surprises. So I worked very hard to try to get a TV job, whatever it was. I know really hadn't done any TV in the U.S. before. It's not like I could choose. So basically, I was able to find a very small project that, interesting enough, ended up being a cult series that it was C-Nation with zombies. I have to say my agents told me, Luis, don't do it. Do not do it. There is nothing there for you to learn. There is nothing in there in this project. Not, there is no money. There is, not, there is no nothing. It's a, it's a very small TV show. I said, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not doing it for the project. I just want to see how it's a set, who runs in the U.S. To my surprise, it was pretty much the same that in Europe, but in English. So <laughs> they gave me the confidence of not having to worry about that element. Like, okay, I'm working in the U.S. in English. And then, funny enough, the TV show became cult, and I think they have done like seven or eight seasons. So that was also interesting that this little TV show that I was doing became so big. I mean, I, I think I did like maybe episode three or four or two and three, something like that. So yeah, it was pretty interesting to get there. And did that allow you to make other TV shows? Because I see you went on to yeah. direct more shows after that. Was that like kind of the gateway to like open that world for you? Well, in a way, yes, because then where I realized it became very obvious is that the TV was becoming a very interesting place to be. There were great projects out there, great scripts, 
And what TV has is that it's, it's sort of like something very rapid that it happens, you know. You say, okay, I'm interested in working on TV, and then, you know, some might say, well, what about this? You know, because they know that you're interested, and they send you a script, and you read it, and it's, if you say yes, you know you're going to be doing this in the next three months. It's like, it happens. It's something very fast. We're working in films. It's sort of like the opposite. You say you want to make a film, but it takes a long time to get to actually film the, to, to make the film. You know, it's a, it's a much slower process, you know. So there is something very interesting about doing TV. It's, uh, you know, it allows you to keep, you know, making films. You know, it's, it's more than just going to the gym and, and doing exercise. It's actually like, hey, you're making films and there are great projects out there. And I have been very lucky to work in some great series. And when I can, I make films. And when I can, I make TV shows. You know, like I don't really make a difference between one and the other. And I think actually lately, you know, also because of the pandemic, we all ended up watching a lot of films or TV shows at home. It doesn't really make that big difference to me, one medium or the other one. Almost, I would say sometimes a TV show becomes almost like a Russian film from the 80s that is three hours long or four hours long because that's what people do. They sit down at home and watch three episodes or four episodes. That's like two hours, three hours. You're like, well, there you go. <laughs> we went back to Russian films, you know, 10-hour films, basically. That's what the TV shows have sometimes. Right. When you work on a TV show versus a movie, does your process as a director change or is it kind of the same, but just in a different medium? Well, it's, it's, it's very different in a way, because when you're doing the film, you start from the very beginning and you carry the whole process to the very end. You are the vision. You are the conductor of the orchestra. Everything is on your shoulders. Of course, you have the producer. You have many, many key heads of the department that are working with you, but you sort of have like the big vision of everything. When you're working on a TV show, that sometimes it is true if you're doing the pilot, but even then, the role of the showrunner is more important than the role of the director in the sense that it, it is the showrunner's vision. It's no longer the director's vision. The director is someone who works for the showrunner. It's sort of like making it happen what the showrunner wrote and wants in the show. So it's a very different approach in a way. It's also a very interesting approach, I have to say. I think it's, it's equally exciting, you know, works for someone's visions than for your own vision. You know, you get to learn a lot and discover things that you didn't imagine. So it's also a form of growing, you know, just collaborating, you know, making films, making TV shows. It's all about collaborating and working with teams. So if you have a great team, it's fantastic because you're learning from everyone. How do you manage coming into a TV show that's already been running for a little while and that like you have to come in and sort of execute the vision of the showrunner, as you said, do you do a lot of prep work or like, do you like try to make sure that you're following the same style and aesthetic, or do you try to bring in some of your own style and aesthetic to your episode to kind of like make it, you know, feel like its own thing within the whole show? Well, I, I had both experience. I had the experience of making some TV shows where they have been running. I did an episode of the second season of Code Black. So that was a machine that it was already running. It's a very clear vision of what the show was about. So literally you come in and you just fulfill a role, the role of the director. And, you know, it's very clear what you have to do. Everything is, you know, there is a Bible that you can read and like, you know, this is how it gets done. And again, it's very interesting because you do things that you usually wouldn't do because maybe, you know, it's not your intuition to go in that direction. But I have to say, most of the TV work that I have done, it has been in shows that they were first season, 
and it has been always either the first episodes, like I just did was recently uh, show in Mexico, all the blood that was, I did the first five episodes. So you have to literally build the whole look of the project from scratch. Or there have been like early episodes and the way how sometimes TV shows are shot, like I did white lines and I was literally shooting at the same time that the director who was shooting the first two episodes. So you find yourself that you have to interpret things that they haven't happened yet. You know, what is going to be the look of the show? Well, there is no reference. There is no, there is no visual reference. There is written reference. There are conversations. There are images that we have in our minds. But it's not like you can really say, well, okay, I see, and nobody looks like, you know. So you have to interpret it, something that is being, getting cooked as you are cooking. This is, uh, you know, you have two kitchens cooking at the same time, and you are both uh, serving the same meal. <laughs> but you don't really know what it's going to be until, you know, the plates are done in a way. So that's very interesting because it allows you a lot of... Uh, conversations with the showrunners, you know, trying to get everyone's visions and interpret it and just go for it and do your best. And I think the key is always working close to the showrunners. So you make sure that what you're doing is what they want. So you, you, you feel more, um, you know, successful. That's the key secret, you know, just working always very close to the showrunners. So it's very exciting because at, at the end of the day, you have to interpret it, something that is written and being persistent, you know, it hasn't been done before. The show itself is trying to figure out what it's about, what is the language of the show. So it's something organic. So it's just, uh, it's a very exciting project, I have to say, when you're working for seasons. So I want to talk a little bit about your process as, as a director working with actors. And so the question is, like, how do you like to work with actors? And then part two to the question is, does it change when you work with somebody like John Malkovich or Halle Berry, who's like, you know, been doing it for so long and is such a big star. Like, do you have to shift or do you come in with the same approach every time? No, I think that the most important thing is to, to remember, to know that every actor is a human being and every actor is completely different to every other actor. As every human being is very different from every other human being. So at the end of the day, I think the job of the director is to understand what you need to give to each actor, what is what they need. And most of this tends to happen when you're preparing the film. So in the case of Halle Berry or John Markovich or Frank Grillo, you talk about what the character is about. And what can I say? I mean, Halle Berry is an Oscar win. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> she is fantastic. So getting to director is amazing because it's allowing you to also tell her, Halle, I think we should go more in this direction or in this other direction. It's even shocking when you have an actor of the calibers of Markovich, uh, Holly, or Frank that come and ask you, um, so am I supposed to go this way or this other way? So it's very in interesting, you know, and, and, you know, and obviously your, your job is to keep in mind the whole picture. And that's sometimes what you need to bring to even the most prepared actor and is to maybe say, hey, by the way, we're coming from here, we're going over there just in case, you know, you forgot. No, afterwards, they blow your mind because you are expecting something and they're so amazing that they just keep growing, 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 and they just bring you something that you couldn't imagine as a director. And again, with other actors and in Shatter, you know, we have Cameron Monaghan, Lily Crew, very young actor, both of them. They're amazing. And pretty much something similar happens. You know, you prepare the film a little bit more with them. Uh, so, you know, they're they are the two protagonists of the film, so there is more to 
prepare, where to rehearse, to talk about the characters, where they're coming from, where they're going, what the film is about. And then sometimes it's just a question of, you know, just giving little touches as you're directing because, you know, it's a machine that is, is, is working along, you know what I mean? I think it was Woody Allen who told to an actor that after several, I think after having shot half of the film, the actor went to Woody Allen and asked him, listen, it's half of the film that we have shot and you haven't told me anything yet. I'm not doing anything wrong. And the story goes that Woody Allen told him, well, you're doing everything right. Otherwise, I would have fired you already. That's where I got you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there is a little bit of that in the sense that when you have great actors, you know, sometimes you just have to walk with them and enjoy the, the, the ride, you know, and obviously work as a team. But, you know, sometimes I don't want to say there is very little to do. You just do that before shooting, you know, that's what you did. How much prep time do you get with these actors before going into the project? Like, do you get like a couple of rehearsal days or like, is it just a couple of Zoom meetings? Like, what is the prep that you get when working with actors like this? It really depends. And I have to say this film was shot during COVID. So that implied that, you know, many of the readings we did then on Zoom, on online, so we wouldn't, you know, so we keep social distancing. We shot it in the spring. So there were still a lot of unknowns about levels of safety, what was safe, what was not. So as much as possible, we tried to do everything remotely. Then eventually we did a thing with Cameron and Lily, that are the two protagonists, main protagonists. We did, I want to think, like a week of rehearsals. Oh. So we went through every single scene and go through the block. You know, obviously we didn't have the house to rehearse physically in the space. But I tried to explain them, okay, this is what it's going to look like. This is what the location looks like. You know, let's expect this, let's expect that. And then with other actors like Grillo, Frank Grillo is, is an actor that is very busy. So he literally came in like two, three days before filming. So basically you just sit down, have a meal with them or have a coffee, have a drink, wherever is available. <laughs> just sort of go through the character and, you know, and make sure that we're both in the same page, you know, that we both understand what we're doing. So then when you're filming, you are on the run, you know, so you don't have to talk about, oh, wait, I thought I was this, why was that? You know, so it's kind of like clear, you know. And again, you know, we're talking of, you know, amazing actors that they, you know, they bring such an amazing background and, and work to the film that, you know, you really want to just sit down and listen and just, you know, see what happened, you know what I mean? Obviously, you know, you prepare the character then and all that, but I find it very fascinating. And exciting, you know, working uh, with actors. And obviously, you know, when you have actors like John Malkovich, you feel like, oh, wow, amazing. I get to direct John Malkovich. That was something, that was one of my dreams. And uh, Frank Grillo, well, here the same, you know. They're great, you know, and as human beings. And they're, they're fantastic actors. So it's really like, you know, just great. Making movies is like the best, best thing you could do. <laughs> I want to ask you about your, your process in saying yes to a project. Because you said before, that's like you read the script, you fall in love. Like, what is it about a, a script that will get you to say yes and, you know, decide that you're going to devote like two, three years, four years to a project? Well, I'm a big moviegoer. I think my interest in films came from watching a lot of films. It happened to be that as I was growing up, I would go to the Cinematheque and watch two, three films a week, where it felt a lot. It felt a lot when I was 12. That's when I really started watching films. So basically, when I read the script, the first thing that I think is, am I going to enjoy watching this film? Is this a good film to watch? I basically, I read it as if I was the spectator. So if I think I'm going to find myself entertained in the movie, that's the first step to say, okay, I want to make it. 
the more excited about I am about watching a movie, the more interested I am in making the movie. And then there are other elements that are very important when you decide to make a movie, or at least in my case. In Shutter, it was actually there were a combination of two things. The script presented its own limitations, and those limitations felt just right in a year of a pandemic. So shooting under COVID, it was obviously an element that it was gravitating in my head. So finding a script with very few characters that is very much contained, that is a thriller, really exciting. It was like, okay, I think this is a great project that I know I can deliver even under a pandemic where we won't have to stop shooting because following the industry protocols, the risk will be minimal because we really have very few actors and very few locations. Now, that doesn't mean that the film is poor. It just is very smart. It was, the film is written in a very smart way. So with very few elements, it's capable of doing a lot. It would be like, you know, thinking of chess. Well, it's just blacks and whites, you know, but yet, you know, or checkers, you know, you can play many, many games and, and never get bored with it. So it was a little bit like that, you know, very few elements, but yet very, very intense and, and, and emotional thriller. So I think at that, with that, we have to go to our final six questions. These, I'll try to get through these pretty quick and we only have six minutes. What's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? And it can be first feature, first short film, however you want to answer the question. Well, my first short, I would say my first short, it was the, I would call it my first film because I really wanted to make also a showcase of what I could do. And it was a short film where I had a love story, a musical, an action film, and a thriller all together in 12 minutes. You know, I had all these elements in 12 minutes. So I was actually trying to make a show real in a way, but yet I also wrote a story that it was powerful enough, as it proved to be with time, that it incorporated all those elements. And it was very exciting to make and to realize, wow, you can have all those things in a film. And in a way, that also happened in Shutter. It's a great thriller, but it has also a fantastic love story. It has a lot of humor, corkiness, and you work in a film in many, many layers. So it doesn't get bored, you know, you don't get bored watching the film, you, know? you sort of like enjoy all the elements because some of them definitely you don't expect it in, in that film, you know. And then what's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Well, I guess the best filmmaking advice, you know, this is, a, I would say this is the best advice for the first time filmmakers. I think that it's only, it only applies to first time filmmakers. So this is very important because I would say after being a first time filmmaker, this advice probably would be the worst advice you can get. But for first-time filmmakers, the best advice is just follow your guts and don't listen to anyone. So make sure you're in your first film. Everyone got a lot of opinions. Most people have got, probably everyone has much more experience than you. So you could listen to everyone and make everyone's film, or you could just ignore everyone and make your film. And that would be my advice to first-time filmmakers. Listen to your guts. That doesn't apply for non-first-time filmmakers because probably you want to See what everyone else has to say, too. <laughs> and then what's the worst filmmaking advice that you've ever received? Probably the worst advice, you know, I guess it was in the form of a critique, and it's sort of like made reference to the first one. When I finished my short film, I showed it to a group of five people, and they were all filmmakers, young filmmakers like me that were trying to break in the film world. And I got killed. They literally killed my short. They said that it was, didn't make any sense. You know, they just really they just didn't get it. So I would say that was 
the worst advice you can get is like, let other ones judge your work in the sense that if you think it's good, okay, it's good. You're right. You know, if you really believe in something, you know, you just keep going until the end. So I'm very glad, for example, that I didn't listen to any of those five people and send my film to all those festivals, like the Tribeca Film Festival, because it became the winner of the Tribeca Film Festival. So anyway, I guess the, that's the advice. <laughs> Don't listen to anyone in your, nurse, in your first films. <laughs> and then do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Well, I guess my goal is uh, to keep making films. You know, it feels like, you know, there are incredible careers of filmmakers that they're just keep building and making wonderful film after wonderful film. And that is really exciting. So I just, I hope that's my goal to be able to keep making films and hopefully have a very long career. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice that you would give yourself? Um, I think I gave only good pieces of advice to myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that I'm very happy how I landed where I landed. You know, I think that I, you know, I was quick enough to make, to give those, to give those advices to myself. So I think at some point in my life, I said like, okay, what is what I want to do? I want to do this. All right. So I just need to focus. I need to drop everything else and just focus. And that's what I did. And, you know, I guess I took my own advice. So that was pretty good. And final question, is making movies hard? Yes and not, in the sense that, you know, I think there are jobs that are much more harder than making movies. So in that sense, it's not. I think we're playing. We're just having fun. Having said that, also having fun making movies can be hard for many reasons. Sometimes because, you know, I would say for the actors, you know, they're playing with summer clothes, you know, winter day, like in the scene of Shadow Rock we have. Cameron, Monaghan, and Frank Grillo driving a yellow convertible in Montana. Well, that day was snowing, but little that I know, <laughs> it was too late <laughs> to change that car or to put the roof because we had shot the previous scene where we saw the car with the roof down. So we have to shoot it with the roof down in a snowy day. So was it hard for Frank Grillo and Cameron's Monaghan? Yes, it was freezing cold. Everyone had gloves, hats. They had the kind of like light clothes. So in that sense, it was very hard for them. But again, everything is relative. You put that with what other people are doing. That's not hard. You know, that's, you know, other people are doing much harder jobs out there. So, so no, I think we're lucky people. Those who make movies. (laughs) Awesome. And then last question, where can people watch Shattered? Where can people find it? And where can people find out more about you as a filmmaker? Well, okay. So Shattered is coming. It will be available in select theaters and on demand on January 14th. So that is in literally little bit more than two weeks. And then it will be available in Blu-ray and DVD on February 22nd. So if you can go to the movie theaters, if you feel like going to the movie theaters, January 14th. And if not, video on demand, January 14th. So Liz, since you missed out on this one, I'll just talk about what I remember. So yeah, Luis was very fascinating because like his first movie was made in Spanish in, you know, in Spain where he's from. So like he went back home to make his movie. So apparently some producers saw an early rough cut of the film and then loved it and was like, yeah, you got to come to Italy and direct this movie for us. And so he just went to Italy, made this movie. His other movie didn't even come out for years later. And then the movie he made in Italy was a humongous like success, like a huge comedy splash in Italy. And then it was like he tried to go to LA to get like representation and be like, look, I just directed this movie. It's like the biggest budgeted movie in, in Italy ever, like biggest box office. Like it's a huge deal. And like no one gave a shit. They're like, it's an Italian. 
why, why do we care about this movie? <laughs> like, you need to make something that's in English, brother, and then we'll, like, talk to you. And so he made two more movies in Italian, and then, like, for some random, like, circumstance, he had an opportunity to make a movie in London in English called The Pusher. So he made that movie on a pretty low budget. And, like, once he did that, that was what, like, got him, you know, representation in, in the U.S. And then from there, he was able to get kidnapped with Halle Berry. You know, his latest movie's got Frank Grillo and John Malkovich in it and stuff. And it's just like, you know, now he's, like, off to the races. And it's like, but it's like, so that's like film seven or whatever, or eight. <laughs> Well, I look forward to listening to the episode and I love the energy you're giving me with regard to the chat. It's like, it seems like I really missed out on a good one. Yeah. <laughs> In other news, we have some news. <laughs> we wanted to share an article from uh, NBC, actually, NBCnews.com. And the title is Golden Globes Honor West Side Story Succession Without Stars or Live Telecast. You know, it's actually a pretty easy article to summarize because it just basically says, we didn't put this award show on television. As you may remember, a few, I think it was actually last year, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association got in trouble because they had 90 voting members and none of them were black. And they were outed when the LA Times published a report on that. And so I don't know whether the fact that they didn't air this ceremony on television has to do with that, but they seem to be going through a redesign phase for what the Golden Globes is. And what the what who comprises the Hollywood Foreign Press Association? What did you think of this article, Auric? Yeah, well, from my from my reading of it, it seemed like that there was this huge controversy, and then the reason why they didn't air it was because they didn't do anything to actually change it. Like they didn't make big <laughs> enough steps to like correct after this huge thing came out. So I think that was sort of why it didn't get aired. And it's like the first time it had had never been aired, and or something, or I can't remember. But it, it's pretty insane. But who cares about the Golden Globes anyways? Like, no one cares. <laughs> like, it's just like a, it's like a, it's like a precursor to the Oscars that like, I mean, I feel like it's cool. Like it matters, you know, like, I mean, obviously if I won a Golden Globe, like I would be fucking stoked, but it's like, you know, I think it's, it's kind of like the, you know, whatever, the ugly duckling of award shows. <laughs> It's very silly. It's like the one, it's like, what is it that the one that they like get drunk at? It's like that in the SAG Awards where they just like have a good time where the Oscars is still is kind of shrouded in this, you know, pretentiousness. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> I have to say, I hate award shows, but I love the Oscars and I've seen every single Oscar that, you know, in my Ugh, lifetime. Last year's was terrible, though. Every oh Oscar is amazing. Every Oscar ceremony is the best. No, last year's was not amazing. <laughs> you cannot okay. lie to me. I've watched every one since I was a kid. I, I tried watching last year's and it was garbage. Well, it was okay. like it was like a bad podcast. Agree to disagree, like, what, but <laughs> because for me, it's not about necessarily the show. It's about like the the hours you sit in front of the television, like thinking about mm. film and its legacy mm. in the Academy. But the whatever the Golden Globes to me is is kind of always been like a silly silly joke of an award show anyway. So I'm fine not having it take up space on television. Can we use that money and those resources for something else? That's what I would like to see. Yeah, I would love to hear from anyone who's ever won a Golden Globe and if it's actually made a difference in your career. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> got to, right? You got to put, you gotta put it in front so. of your name. Like, it's got to be valuable in terms of optics. But, but how many times do you see a Golden Globe nominee on a poster, but you always see Oscar nominee on a poster? 
That's you true. Know, you so have to win. It would be Golden Globe winner, if anything. Yeah, if you won a Golden Globe, maybe it goes on the poster. But I don't think Golden Globe nominees are getting touted on movie posters out there. But yeah, if I'm wrong, I'd love, I'd love to know. It's silly. <laughs> I do acknowledge that the Oscars are stupid. I just love them. I, they're stupid. Well, can, can, can you, I mean, I, I just really briefly, like, I wouldn't have to get into the whole thing, but like, can you at least acknowledge to me that like last year's Oscars was like not as good as every other Oscars that came before, even the bad ones? I honestly don't remember. I don't remember. I don't, I, <laughs> <laughs> I have no recollection of last year's Oscars. It, it, it was like they, they did it like in, like a different room and it was like really small there's only like the people who were n- like nominated there basically it was like a super <gasps> oh, small group oh that's right and and everyone like, was in their room with their like little bubble that's right they went and they the didn't do rooms. they didn't do movie clips for the first time in, in in a thousand years they just interviewed the person like not about the movie they made but about their lives so it was <laughs> just like right. a little <laughs> clip about their lives and like so little right. like short I little anecdotes it. and you're like Wait, like the thing that you're here for is what we all care about. Like you are here because this one thing you did, yes. that's great. Like I want to hear about that thing. And instead, it's just like, it's like if, if, we, if on the show we talked about nothing but filmmaking and we're like, yeah, I like oranges and apples <laughs> and pizza is my favorite food. And yeah, that's really cool. Like that. I, I like to like do MMA, like, you know, kickboxing in my garage. Like, yeah. <laughs> And that was like our show, and it wasn't about filmmaking. That's what the fucking Oscars were to me. Okay. And like, I turned it off halfway through. I was like, this is bullshit. Like, I'm not watching this crap. We're never going to get back to the like the Billy Crystal montage days. That, or the year, like- the, the 2021 was pretty good. I enjoyed myself. I was super depressed. My dad died that day, but I still oh love the Oscars. Oh like, gosh. I still watched it with my mom, and it was like amazing that we got to enjoy it when it was like this huge, we're all crying, but it's like, I, that Oscar was great for me just like all the other oscars are great but like i will admit that the show probably wasn't its best but i still i will not say i didn't love it because i will watch every oscar nonstop. (laughs) well you're more diehard than me i'm gonna i'll watch next year i'm gonna i'm gonna give it it's i'm gonna try i'll give it a shot but if but if it's the same format i I don't i don't know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna be very pissed Anyways, some more interesting, exciting things. We have yet another listener email. This one from longtime listener Clinton Cornwell. Clinton writes, Hey all, been rolling this question around in my head for a while, but unsure of how to phrase it. So here it goes. What is more important in advancing your career? The quality of films you produce or having the connections to create new opportunities for yourself? Or is it both are equally important and you need them both? I guess it's a question of where we should be investing our resources, advancing our craft and skills in order to make the, that cream of the crock piece of content, or focus more on networking, promoting, so as to cultivate those nepotism relationships for when you make something. Is it 50-50 between the two, where we should be allocating resources? 80-20 towards skill and making an amazing film? The landscape seems to be ever-shifting, so just curry about y'all's current perspective. So, what do you think, Liz? I think this is a great question. I'm really curious to hear your answer. Oh, jeez. Oh, by the way, I like Clinton Cornwell, so I just wanted to say that to take up space. I mean, I feel like I am answering this from a, a slight place of privilege because I want to say, you know, fuck networking, just go for craft. But I can say that because I have spent years and years and years developing my network to a place where I feel very comfortable with the relationships that I have. And I feel like I'm connected to really high profile individuals. They may not like me. They may not want to talk to me, but I at least know how to get places. So 
to me, networking is vital, but I don't do anything actively to energize my relationships as of right now because I feel pretty good about them. So the answer for me is everything should go into craft. But if you're in a place where you're starting out in the world, then it feels like it's a 50-50 thing where it's 50 network and 50 craft in Hollywood. Yeah. I don't know. I think this is a, a hard question to answer, but I think like pe- people use this networking phrase a lot and I've used it my whole career. I heard it in college. Like it's always been this thing that like, you know, it's like got to network, you got to network. But I think what's more important and what everyone says is like, you know, creating relationships, right? Which is like, yeah. should be the, re- like the actual way that you talk about networking. And to understand what that actually means, like, I think like it's, it's not really about like having a goal when you're talking to somebody. It's more like just making friends with people, e- even if it's like, you know, just an, an email, a series of email exchanges where you like share about movies that you like, or like, oh, somebody has a project and you listen to them out and hear about their project and like you give notes on the script or something. Like, I think those kinds of relationships and like making sure that you're, you know, active in your community and active within the people that you know and that you meet through your filmmaking journey. I think like that's really what it means to me now. Like it doesn't really mean like, oh, I got to go to this event and meet as many people as possible and like, you know, try to like whatever. It's more like, oh, is there somebody in my community that I may not know who's making a movie that needs some support? Like, oh, can I go to their event to support them? Or can I listen to their pitch or read their script? Oh, is like somebody who listens to the show, like asking me for producer recommendations like oh let me respond to that email and like get back to them and like try to help if i can you know it's like those are the things that i think i'm like focusing more in my like quote unquote networking world is like just trying to engage right and like yeah i don't know interact i suppose like i just did all this these pitches for my movie through this investor tech investor thing and you know most people haven't gotten back to me but like a few have and like you know a couple of them were just like you know, sending each other articles about the Matrix movie and shit, you know, and just like, like talking about movies we like. This guy's got a film blog, like I'm reading his film blog and like, oh, wow, I can't believe you thought that about this movie. Like, or yeah, 8-bit Christmas is shit. Yeah, I tried watching it. It's terrible. I agree with you. You know, like things like that. It's like whether or not like we end up working together on something or end up collaborating. It's like, that's like not important. It's more just like, uh, let me just have fun goofing off with this person and like, you know, discussing the thing that I love, which is movie making. Sure. So I'm going to say, like, that's what I like to do. And I think that that's sort of what I'm hearing. Like, we just talked to this guy, uh, Milan, and like, th- he was talking about going to a party at Sundance, for instance. And like, you know, people are going around the room, like, pitching. And before they even like hear your name, they like jump into their pitch, you know? And it's like, he just turns off when, when he hears that. But it's like, oh, if I can just talk to somebody and like hear about them and like get to know them. It's like, that's so much more valuable, you know? And so I just, when I'm in these, these circumstances where I'm like in a party, like meeting people, it's like asking the questions and trying to make the connection of getting to know other filmmakers, like that's so much more valuable than like, yeah, trying to like edge in your next project. I, I totally agree in terms of quality of connections that everything what you're saying tracks, but I do believe that I get jobs because of the fact that I worked at Sundance, which is networking. Right. So for me, the associations I have, the professional associations I have with my name add equal value than my skills. I, I don't know if the people I work with have seen Speed of Life or Bread and Butter. Like the projects that I'm attached to, like producers that I brought on, I don't even know if they've seen my previous movies. So me, it's not about craft and talent and a lot of jobs that I've garnered. It's the presumption 
that I'm bringing value because I've got these two features off the ground, the relationships I've made, and the fact that I worked at Sundance, they perceive and anticipate that I'm going to bring more value to the project because of that. I just think it's like, it's like really important to like make the, the movie, right? Or, or the show or the short or whatever it is. Like, I think that's like paramount. Like if you're going to be a filmmaker and you're out in the world, like trying to get your next project made, it's like making things that you think are good and that you care about and that you can stand behind are like, is like the most important thing. And all the other stuff around it is also important, but like, you know, like, like is tweeting about your movie 10 million times or like, you know, going on Instagram and, and, and talking about your project is like that time investment more important than like, you know, another draft on the script to make sure it's awesome. But that's different. Like, I, that's I, I marketing versus craft. Well, he kind of, he kind of, he kind of wrapped it all together, like spending, you know, you know, putting time into, you know, networking, promoting. Well, I agree. I think we're on the same page that relationship building is really important. But where we deviate is I think I'm a little bit higher on the spectrum of the importance of of a network to your career. Yeah. And I put a little bit more priority on that. But that doesn't specifically social networking, too. You mean, right? Or you mean like I think professional networking has been vital to me. But do you feel like your time on Twitter and, you know, Facebook and Instagram and these places? Like, do you think that's equally as important or do you um, feel like that's it has tied been. in? I mean, I became friends with like an influencer on Twitter because of our back and forth. And then I hired her to do a rewrite on a project. And then one tweet from her on anything we do together does get me more followers, gets me. I mean, there's like a there's a currency that happens in social media. So, yeah, I do think it's important. But and only if it comes from a vulnerable place. I became friends with her because I like her because she's funny, not because right. I was like, I want something from her. But do you feel like the, if you took the social networking aspect out of your career and you kept all the other networking parts or, or connection parts of it, the relationship part of it, do you feel like that would still have the same value? Or do you feel like your social media presence is like integral into like your filmmaking life? I think it's integral, but that's different for me because I am a recluse and I don't like to leave the house. And I say that I use the term recluse pretty loosely, but I think my best friend can attest, I don't like to go places. And so social media becomes my my way of navigating the world. It's like your social outlet in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess what I think about the social media, what I've been thinking about a lot lately is just like, you know, it needs to come, like you said, from a place of authenticity and a, a place of like you enjoy it. If you enjoy being on social media, it's probably not worth being on it, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Get out. Get out while you can. Definitely. Because, like, you know, you're not going to make the meaningful connections the way that you're going to interact with it. Like, I think, you know, you have to actually enjoy, like, spending, you know, whatever, half hour or an hour a day, like, you know, you know, writing tweets or responding or interacting with people on there. Because if you don't, it's like, that's that's where the value and the, and the joy of it is. Like, I'll I'll jump on every once in a while and, like, you know, have a few exchanges just because that's how I want to inter- interact with it. But if I tried to do more than that, I don't think I would enjoy it. And then it would be like, defeat the purpose. And maybe the way I'm using it now is defeating the purpose. But, you know, it's the way, I, the amount of enjoyment I get out of it, you know, so might as well give it that amount, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad way of looking at it. But <laughs> I think it's a good way to answer the question, though. Yeah, I don't know. I think make your goddamn movie. <laughs> like, really... That's the most, and then get your movie out and like put as much energy into like being there for your film as you can be. Like, you know, submit it to film festivals. When something happens to it, 
shout it out to the world as best you can, you know, like, like stand behind your movie. I think that's what is most important, but like you have to have a project to stand behind. So if you're spending all your time networking and being on social media and you don't have a project, it's like, I think that's a problem. I agree. Make your damn movie, everyone. And with that in mind, I'm going to close out the show with mentioning that you also want to support the International Screenwriters Association, who supports our show. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals. They have consultation courses, contests, lots of cool things. Head on over to networkisa.org. Going back to Clinton Cornwall's letter, you can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. We'll read it on the show if you do. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check out the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, social media, the way you can network and improve your career <laughs> at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Thanks to Louis Prieto for coming on the show, Sam Anaya, and our producer, Eric. Eric Tom's hero, hero of all mankind, for being awesome. And thanks to our editor, Jeff Rymoot, for doing the editing. Thanks to all of you for listening and talk to you next week. So without any more blither blabber, let's uh, go to our chat. Take two, Jeff. So without any more blither blather, let's go to the... Ah, fucking Jesus.